we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 81, Iron Fist Velvet Glove. With me is a special guest, Hugh Harris. Hugh, welcome aboard. Thank you, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. So for those of you who don't know Hugh, um, Hugh's actively involved in the rationalist, secular, atheist community of Australia. And I was just on your, uh, web, well, on your blog, Hugh, uh, Rational Razor, and oh, yes. in, I clicked on the About tab. Uh, you've been involved in architecture for 25 years. You are a guitar player in an alternative rock band, and you're also a semi-professional online poker player that's a good that's a good resume yeah the sort of person uh, who doesn't know what he wants to be right. <laughs> I, I think so um yeah i've done a bit of that that stuff but uh recently um been writing some articles in the um australian media about secular issues in particular mm. uh rationalism i have a bit of an interest in uh philosophy philosophy of religion uh in particular and all of my uh, writings team seem to be focused by some of the things that you've been talking about in, in your previous podcasts, starting from a position of non-belief and extrapolating that out to um, discussing how belief affects society and how particularly Christian beliefs are privileged in Australian politics. Mm. So it's fascinating how it's all intertwined um, into various things and one leads to another. So, because yeah. um, I know with the blog, we really started off as a sort of very secular sort of religion bashing sort of blog, uh, well, podcast, but we're sort of morphing now into an ethical and why we're here sort of thing and looking at cultural appropriation and cultural relativism and all these other issues that are all mixed up with it. So it is fascinating. And um, you're inspiring, Hugh, because you actually write stuff. Um, I've been lazy in just podcasting, but you've written articles that have appeared on ABC, Fairfax, New Matilda, Courier Mail, Huffington Post. And um, so good on you. If actually get you. It's inspiring. I'm going to write a bit more myself, having looked at your website and decided I should start writing a bit more, not just not just talking. Okay, one, great. One thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which I didn't didn't give you warning of, but I noticed on your blog you said that you represented the Rationalist Society at the Religious Freedom Roundtable hosted by uh, Tim Wilson in late 2015. Yes. So <clears throat> I thought that he had one discussion for religious groups and then he had another discussion which was for the non-religious groups and it was the second one that got... Um, cancelled when he quit the job and yes so which one were you involved in the the first one actually did have four I think it was four non-religious groups so it had the atheist foundation the rationalist foundation and the humanists of New South Wales and another one right Um, and then about 25 religious groups so it was in a um in the Human Rights Commission in um, Sydney, and George Brandis opened it. Yep. 
Um, he opened in his speech opening it. He said that um, people who criticise Christianity are pseudo intellectuals. Um, so he it, it didn't start on the most auspicious note. <laughs> and um, but um, I have to say that for um, all of the all of the progressive uh, humanist groups who uh, are not fans of Tim Wilson, he he presided over it very well. Right. And he, he took into account uh, our underdog opinions in the room, um, I, I think, quite well. Right. In, in your blog here, you said you were surprised how many ostensibly religious groups shared a belief in secularism. Yes, I was the Uniting Church, um, the um, representative of the Jewish groups that were there, particularly almost had exactly the same perspective as what you and I would have mm. or what the Atheist Foundation had. Um, none of them are wishing to push um, the, pri the privileging of religion or the things that we object to about religion in schools mm. um, and tend to have a similar... Uh, there's probably quite a large overlap with some of the more uh, moderate religious groups um, with progressive politics, mm. which makes them agree to concepts of human rights and religious freedom and understand religious freedom in the same way that we understand religious freedom, which is freedom not to be coerced by uh, religion as opposed to the freedom of religious groups to do whatever they like because it's religion. Mm. So there tended to be that. There was Baha'i groups which had the same same philosophy, and it was really only the, uh, the Catholics, the Baptists, and I think it was the, the Hillsong group which were... Uh, really anti, very much pushing a very strong religious sparrow. Yeah. I, I had some dealings with a lady heavily involved with religious instruction classes in Queensland, um, teaching volunteers what they could and couldn't do from the Uniting Church, and she was really appalled at the behaviour of the more evangelical groups and what they were up to. And... Um, and she really had the view that they were kind of pulling out of religious instruction classes because they took it seriously that they shouldn't be prophetizing and uh, they were of the opinion, well, why are they there if not to proselytize? So they, uh, yeah, it was um, a very sensible view, I thought, from the Uniting Church in relation to religious instruction classes, from that lady anyway. So, Yeah, um, no, there's an um, article in the Newcastle, Newcastle Herald, I think, yesterday where... Um, the Anglican Father Rod Bauer and also Catholic um, person have come out in support of concerns over religious instruction in New South Wales with the inappropriate materials and the fundamentalist nature of the Connect materials. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, that's really positive that those people are coming out and we really should be allies with them. Mm. Unfortunately, I think they're the shri shrinking sort of segment of the religious group and the, <laughs> and the growing segment of the more evangelical Hillsong groups are the ones that are actually growing. So They're the loudest, aren't they? Yeah. So, so Hugh, uh, first topic we're going to talk about is Scientology. And you have had some personal experience with Scientologists of late. And how did that all start? Because I think you were just walking down the street and was accosted by one. Is that what, how it all started? 
Not, not exactly. It was a bit more calculating from my perspective. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I was curious in the personality test because of an article written by Emma Reynolds in um, news.com.au mm -hmm. about them, and it seemed the implication was that they're all calibrated to produce a negative result. So I thought I'd go and have a look at it, not with really the intention to write an article, but if something came out of it, perhaps I would. Yep. And so I went in. Um, it was a little bit like the control deck of the Starship Enterprise in there in Castle Race Street. There are video pods where you... This is in Sydney. In Sydney, in Castle Race Street, Sydney. I happened to be near there, so I just went in there at lunchtime. And they've spent, I think, it's $7.5 million, something like that, on the place. So it's in quite a bit of money. There's these um, video pods there which look just like Captain J. Kirk sits at and talks to Klingons with. Yes. Um, yes. There's, there's all the displays and books and there's even a, a replica office for L. Ron Hubbard in case he wants to beam down from another uh, galaxy. <laughs> Apparently these are, these are in all Scientology offices. Because he will be That's coming it. back. That's right. <laughs> yes. He will be. Um, so I do the test and... It, it asks a bunch of 200 questions. Some of them are very kooky questions. Do you look in directories or dictionaries just for fun? Or do you, <laughs> do you occasionally, does an unexpected action cause your muscles to twitch? Right. So a lot of these, a lot of these questions uh, seem to be suggesting that you give a negative answer about yourself. A lot of them are self-fulfilling, asking you things such as, if you are in an overwhelmingly stressful situation, would you be stressed? Yes. That would yes. ask you the equivalent of that. And then and then the response came back. And so um, this bloke, they're all in uniforms in there. And uh, they're kind of these corny sort of naval style uniforms. The, uh, they zip about with... Um, like attendants on a ship. Are they kind and, of like, um, are they in suits? Are they, are they business suits? More like um, the uh, bloke who did my test was in a suit with a white shirt and a narrow black tie, yeah. uh, glasses, it sort of looked like the sort of guy who'd bring you a pizza on, on Saturday night. I can, right, yep. And so I sat down with him. And he said, oh, look, Hugh, um, we've got your result. And unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's not the best. And, and I went, went through it. And it, was, it shows a graph where the, where the left-hand side is all very low. The, it goes up to normal in the middle. And then it goes right down to very low on the right-hand side. So it looks like an iceberg mm -hmm. where there's a line in the middle which it says acceptable. That's where acceptable is. Yep. And unfortunately, most of my personality was was way below acceptable. In fact, um, out of a scale of positive 100 to negative 100, I scored negative 100 on depression. <laughs> so um, I didn't write this in the article. The article went up on the Daily Telegraph a couple of weeks ago. But I didn't write all of this. But I basically argued with the guy for about half an hour right. trying to convince him that um, what he's doing is unethical and this can't be right. He can see with his own eyes that I'm not depressed yes. and I'm not the most depressed person in the world. I have a family. I have an old damn job. I, you know, yeah. what about people with clinical depression? All of that. Isn't this a problem for you? And he, he said, well, look, there might be a bit of a glitch there with that one with right. the depression, but I've seen how this works and I think it works. And um, 
and he didn't couldn't justify the scientific backing of the test. He admitted straight out he didn't know how it worked. But then I noticed him reading um, and probing me from a list of um, from a piece of paper and it seemed to have a list of things on it. And so I said, can I see this? And this is the reason I wrote the article because I haven't seen this published anywhere. Mm. It was a list of the most judgmental observations on my personality that you could imagine. So Trevor, imagine having your personality tested and someone saying something like this to you. I'll read it out. Mm. Trevor, <laughs> you are completely irresponsible. <laughs> You accuse others of having ruled your life and made it what it is, but it is actually your own fault, and at no time have you readily accepted your share of responsibility. You, oh, there's the, the, hor the horrific one here. Um, oh, what does it say? You, you see no real reasons to live as your life is full of problems and difficulties that your despondent attitude prevents you from solving. You are in a complete state of nervousness. You are very irritable and, and be can become hysterical or violent in your actions. And so oh this, this goes on for a whole page. And that was that was maybe – and so that's what I – my reaction was exactly the same as you. I actually said, oh, my God and looked at this thing and I just thought that was horrific. And yet after that, um, this bloke, Scott and I, we had a nice amicable chat, wished each other well, and then he, um, and then he let me loose on um, Sydney, being violent, hysterical, um, completely likely to top myself. Um, where's the ethics in that? That he, is- He must have quickly summed you up as being not a potential Scientologist and just to let you go, it was quickly and without as much fuss as possible like he didn't try too hard once you confronted him by the sounds of it no he did he tried to he he did for a while we had a really good half an hour chat okay but one but once we moved on to this list he'd given up right uh, it, it, because the conversation sort of turned to me trying to persuade him rather than him um trying to persuade me yes. um yes. but i have to say he was a nice bloke he seemed like an honest broker that he was trying to do the right thing. But the troubling thing that I found as I left was he must know that it's all fake. He can't be just letting loose people onto the street if he really believes that they're hysterical, violent and prone to clinical um, depression. Mm. I mean, the thing is, we're having a bit of a chuckle about it, the ridiculousness yes. of it, but it is incredibly dangerous. For groups like this to be doing these sorts of things to people, um, uh, and and because what they do from here is they find vulnerable people and convince them that they're uh, that they're in trouble, that they need help, and that Scientology has the solution, and they they drag them into their web and start brainwashing them into yes. into believing they've got the solution. They start putting them onto all sorts of courses that they run, charge them money for them, and, um, and really encourage them to disassociate with their friends and family who might be dissuading them from continuing with this group. So it's, it's more than just funny. It's actually evil what they do uh, where they try and prey on vulnerable people. Um, yeah. It, it's surprising that a lot of this stuff goes into the media and yet no one really does anything about it. I, I rang up 
I rang up the psychology uh, groups. They said they don't they don't have any they can't do anything about it because they offer their services as a religion, not as a psychological society. The medical medical boards don't do anything about it. There's basically unless they overtly break the law or are found to um, someone killing someone, as happened um, about 10 years ago, um, because they were taken off their um, their drugs, mm. uh, their mental illness drugs, um, nothing happens. So a Norwegian student, Kaja Borjevic Balo, killed herself in France three hours or a few hours after taking the personality test mm. and left a note, a suicide note that apologised to her family, saying sorry for not being good at anything. Mm. And then there was a resulting police investigation which failed to tie any of this to Scientology. Mm. So they failed to provide a, a link. But, yeah, I agree. It, it's, it really is pernicious. And the only one in politics in Australia who's done anything about it is Nick Xenophon, mm. who, who tried to stop them from getting their tax-free basis on the, on the basis of being a beneficial to society. Mm. So I... I don't, I'm not as worried about it as I might be because my impression of going to, I went to the Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane Scientology headquarters, they're much smaller than what they seem to be, mm. given the amount of publicity they get. Mm. Uh, they might, they've spent 50 million or so on a mental illness facility in Sydney, which is a concern, mm. but I don't think they have a huge amount of members in Australia. I don't think it would be more than a few thousand. Mm. Now, you subsequently went to another one in, in Melbourne with Meredith Yes, with, with Meredith Doig, who's just uh, the president of the Rational, uh, Rationalist Society, who's just received our uh, Order of Australia honours. Yes. So that's quite good for her. Um, but um, we went there and I tried to be a bit of a smart aleck and fill out the <laughs> questionnaire with um, all the same answer. Yes. You can fill it out with yes, no, or maybe. And I tried to fill the whole thing out with maybe. Yeah. Um, I was trying to... I was trying to uh, replicate some other tests that have been done by psychological societies that show that you get the same result no matter what you do. Yes. However, they they picked before feeding it into the computer, they picked it up and then accosted me and um, we had some harsh words with the, the uh, lady in charge of the tests there. But she took me down to where other people were doing the test and had it out with me right in front of other people who were doing the tests. Right. So right. she did, demanded to know what my agenda was. Why did I fill out the test like this, all of this sort of stuff? And then she wouldn't answer any questions in return. I, I wanted to know how did she put it through the algorithm and what response did she got back, and she wouldn't answer it. And um, now Meredith, did they know that Meredith was with you? They did, yes. Yes, and, and her score? when her, her test came back. Well, she's a remarkable woman, but her score, <laughs> her test came back unusually um, positive. Mm. She, was, uh, she was way above the acceptable line in, I think, in all categories, bar one where she was slightly lower than. So it was a change to the rule, that result. And um, after I had the test, Trevor, I was... I, the power of suggestion is that strong that even being such a cynic, I couldn't help but be wanting to investigate it a bit further, so I read up quite a bit about it. Mm -hmm. And in the 70s, the British Psychological Society um, assessed this test. They answered it by randomising their responses in three different ways, so uh, three different formulas for making sure the total responses were total, totally random, 
and they all came up with the same result of the personality iceberg where low responses on the left, high in the middle, low on the right. Yes. So it seems to me that there's enough evidence out there to say this thing is totally calibrated to make you to produce a a um, a disturbing result, which Elron Hubbard said that they should reinforce the ruin of the person's personality in order to emphasise the value of Scientology products. Yes, yes. So, Part of me wants to encourage listeners, just because we in Brisbane. Um, a few of the uh, secular party members went to Hillsong for a for a service and just found it fascinating. And um, it's just a good morning out, actually. And yeah. you've done this with yours, which you found fascinating. And part of me is sort of saying, wants to say to people, hey, you know, for a, for a bit of entertainment, go to Scientology and do the test and see what happens. But the other part of me is saying, don't go anywhere near them. If you're if you're partly fragile in any sense, there's a real danger that they'll get their claws into you, and and you're a goner. So, yeah. So yeah, I, I'd agree. I'd agree with the second part. Mm. I would have thought it's har- harmless enough prior to going to it. Mm. But um, you know, if it can actually affect someone like me, mm. you know, nearly fifty years old, I've had numerous personality tests done on me and complete cynic about the whole thing. Yet the power of suggestion is that strong. Uh, imagine how it is for an eighteen-year-old person who mm. goes there, mm. someone who mm. might be susceptible to suggestion or vulnerable to mel- mental illness. Yes. So that's uh, so that's your experience with Scientology. Just for those who don't know, um, so yeah, founded by L. Ron Hubbard, who was a science fiction writer, and uh, there's lots of stuff on the internet and books. I've mentioned before, there's a podcast called Oh No, Ross and Carrie, where they did something similar to you, but over a long extended period where they um, they um, did various tests and it's several hours of podcasting involved and it's fascinating what went on there. So if you want to hear of other people's experiences, the Oh No, Ross and Carrie podcast... And just to give you an idea of the wackiness of Scientology, just part of their beliefs, um, this is this is what they believe. Um, an evil alien ruler, Xanu, killed millions of aliens, called Thetans, from around the universe by kidnapping them, bringing them to Earth in golden DC-8 space planes, stacking them around volcanoes and blowing them up by dropping H-bombs into the volcanoes. Scientologists believe that the souls of these aliens, called body thetans, were captured, brainwashed and released and they attached themselves to our ancestors and they also attached to us during our previous lives and they cause many of the mental and physical ills to this day. And what they do in Scientology is a process called auditing which is meant to clear us of these body thetans that are like barnacles on our on our minds. So part of this auditing is that they sit down one-on-one with people and exhaustively examine the lives and get people to tell secrets and dark thoughts that they might have had and just relentlessly drill down into their into their activities of a of a sort of a darker side and their darker thoughts. And the problem is that that's then you know, allegedly used um, in a potential blackmailing afterwards. When people want to leave Scientology, it's possible for Scientology to say, well, you can leave, but hey, we know all these things about you and 
So you may not want to leave. I mean, that's the allegation that's made against them. So kooky, but also sinister in an ugly mix that, yes, dear listeners, stay away from them. Not, not even for entertainment value should you go near them. And the sooner we remove tax-exempt status for these sorts of groups, the better. Hugh? Here, here. Mm. And Lee, uh, Lee Remini's documentary is um, coming out soon on um, one of the Australian channels. I'm not sure if it's SBS or one of the Foxtel ones. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Now, you sent me an article from New Matilda um, yeah. titled Busting Black Myths, The Truth About Our First Peoples. Yes. And uh, you asked me if I was outraged, as outraged about this as, as you are. And yes. I probably am. And okay. w- one of the things we've decided, dear listener, is um, rather than just have Hugh and I agreeing with each other about stuff, that we should try and take uh, a sort of a debating approach to things where one of us will artificially take the other side to, to probe the thoughts of the other. So, so in this case, Hugh, um, I will artificially take the, the side of, a, of an Aboriginal sympathiser and perhaps even the author of this document, and we'll yep. go through it, and you can you can stop me whenever you disagree with something that the author's said, and um, and we'll, we'll see where we come to. So, so feel so feel free to interrupt at any point when you think that something objectionable has been said. But Hugh, but okay. before before we do that, yeah, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal people, and their leaders, past, present, and future. Great, thank you for that. I'd like to acknowledge the previous owners of the land, the dinosaurs. I think it's, I think it's important. <laughs> no, sorry, just joking. Go on. No, well, I, I, well, you see, I didn't know if you were, if you're going to object to. Well, let's go. Do you, I don't object to that. I, I, I don't object to it because I think it is a reasonable cultural thing. But I, to be honest, intellectually, I do object to it. Mm-hmm. in the sense that I don't think any human owns land mm-hmm. any more than any other animal owns land. We're just a creature upon the land. And so um, I think in the spirit of reconciling different cultures and living together and um, doing the opposite of what we see religion normally doing, being inclusive rather than divisive, I think mm-hmm. that sort of sentiment is a good thing. See, this is why I'm called the Iron Fist, Hugh, because we really should be... I'm going to, I'm going to take off my Aboriginal sympathiser hat now and put, and put my Iron Fist hat on. Go for it. Because I think that's... I, you know, you go along to um, a school speech night or you go along to any you know, government function where there's a minister or something, and they'll always start with acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, their leaders past, present and future. And... I see that as actually divisive because I see that as actually um, reinforcing a distinction between people who are otherwise the same. And it's saying, well, there are Aboriginal people who are different to non-Aboriginal people in some way or other. And I think it actually reinforces division rather than um, uh, bridging um, division. Yes, I can see your point. It's not something I've thought a lot about. I can see the point that it it um, perpetuates victimhood. Mm. It perpetuates the narrative that 
we've really just got to be angry about the past and never get over it. And um, intellectually, I, 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 I think it's an empty sentiment in that um, when they when they pay homage to the traditional owners, how do they know which traditional owners were the guardians of the land the whole time? Because tribal warfare uh, would have been an aspect that that happened for tens of thousands of years in Australia. And who's to say who was the first owner of any particular patch of land in Australia when there was, correct me if I'm wrong, but something of over 200 different different tribes and ethnicities amongst um indigenous populations so i think it's something of an empty sentiment i don't see a huge amount of harm in it as long as it's as long as it's um doesn't doesn't um take on a more a more uh, sinister role than what it than what it does mm. so you now you stole my point there hugh um because yes like i live in the gap area so that the terrible people t-u-r-r-b-a-l are acknowledged as the traditional owners but who knows what tribe was in charge before them and were defeated in a battle and why aren't we acknowledging them like this is how far yeah. back do you go so maybe someone so, else should then step up step up to the podium and then pay homage to the previous traditional owners and we go back in an infinite regress yes until we get to the big bang yes and i can remember australian open tennis many many years ago marcus bagdadis was doing very well and i think he was some sort of Croatian or Serbian and and it was clear in the support in the tennis crowd there was sort of a Croat Serbian sort of divide and and flags and and it was my feeling was you people are still arguing over old battles it's you've got to stop at some point and I just yeah. personally feel that way myself but okay I've digressed I'm going to take my iron fist hat off and I've got my Aboriginal sympathizer hat Get, get your, your soft identity politics uh, hat on. I do. So, okay, so back to this article. Um... Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses... But more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Uh, It is one of the great myths about Aboriginal people that before European invasion, Aboriginal people were simply living off the land with no civilization and a culture that didn't make it out of the Stone Age, despite tens of thousands of years of human habitation. If you believe this trope, you would be one of those arguing that the invasion and the massacres and smallpox and stolen children that came along with it was all for the greater good. Great. Uh, Can I stop you there? Yes. Um, That was the passage I had highlighted. Um, I think what's wrong with that is that it goes on for several further paragraphs, getting slightly angrier and slightly angrier in suggesting that if you don't agree with the truth of what she's saying, that you are, you're not an advanced person yourself, mm-hmm. and that you're basically racist. Yes. And so that's, that's the problem with the article is that it starts off for the, it sets up that I'm going to accuse you of being racist. 
if, unless you disagree with me. So we're talking about two different things. We're talking about identity politics, but then we're talking about basic facts. And unless you understand the facts a certain way that's sympathetic to um, Amy's viewpoint, then you're, um, you've got to check your white privilege. Mm. So she's saying that uh, if you're one of those people, you're regurgitating 19th century propaganda. And after 200 years, I thought you might have advanced just a little. Yeah. That's part of her argument. So, yeah. uh, so she argues that uh, Aboriginal people were far more civilised than the traditional white man's view is what she yes. goes on to say in the rest of the article. And she said that Aboriginal people had great architecture. Yeah. They were the first bakers. They were the yep. first farmers. Had the world's oldest burial rituals. That they were the first astronomers. That they had sophisticated mathematics and physics. Yes. Um. Any of these you want to stop me with? Yeah, the, the one the one that I kind of stopped with and began to get a little bit suspicious was when she said, so it, su it suited the colonial project to paint Aboriginal peoples as hunters and gatherers when the reality was far different. We had a sophisticated system of agriculture as Aboriginal author Bruce Pascoe outlines in Dark Emu and could have been the first person, people in the world to bake bread. So there's a bit of a could have been uh would have been um so this didn't this does didn't gel with my understanding of history that i learned when i was at school so i read a bit about it online and um the, the aboriginal peoples are actually understood by science and history as being hunters and gatherers and specifically hunters and gatherers and fishers um that's why all of the drawings that you see about when the first fleet arrived have tribes, tribesmen holding spears and in tribal communities. And um, the, we, the Aboriginal tribes, the evidence that's presented by this bloke, Bruce Pascoe, whose goal is to promote Aboriginal culture unashamedly, is of incipient agriculture and is um, flimsy evidence at best. So there, there, there aren't examples of all of the different Aboriginal tribes having a sophisticated system of agriculture there are scattered evidence of incipient agriculture and the other indigenous people that we might consider are Torres Strait Islanders who are regarded as agriculturists they they genuinely did have agricultural culture right. and um, that's not even mentioned at all in the article um, but it's it's very important to the author to um, bump up and to and to um, artificially sort of elevate the level of civilization that um, indigenous cultures were supposed to have achieved um, beyond beyond and, and the claims just get more and more crazy until until you, that she starts describing them of Steve, Stephen Hawking like geniuses who are <laughs> who are uncovering the secrets to the cosmos. Um, she Whereas, does, but, what, what, you know, Hugh, you're perhaps speaking as a privileged white male imposing your white man's view of the facts onto her lived experience. I mean, your reality is quite different to hers. And how yes. dare you? 
I mean, yeah, it's, what, it's what she feels is her lived experience of Aboriginality that counts, and you're just imposing your white man's view of civilization. Yes. Um, in other words, that because I'm a white man, I don't have a I my um, opinion or my understanding of history isn't as valid. And so that you can't talk about any other culture that's not your own. Yes, you can't understand so, the so nuance that's involved that an Aboriginal person would. When yeah. Looking, when looking at these facts, it's it's like another language to you. You don't see the the essence that they see because of their of their special position of living in that culture, and you're just an yeah. outsider who can't who can't fathom it. Yes. It's um, it's difficult, but from my perspective, someone like um, Amy McGuire, who writes the article and who I consider to be someone who's trying to do the right thing and to be an honest broker in what she's talking about. However, she's simply cherry picked a whole lot of evidence to suit her own view. Mm-hmm. Um, she's coming from exactly the same point as I am. We're looking at the history books and looking at the evidence. It doesn't matter whether you're white, black, yellow or red. Um, the evidence is still the evidence that's there. It's just a matter of how you interpret that evidence and what weighting you put onto it. So um, in my in my opinion, every perspective is equally valid um, in that none of them are really valid unless they use the evidence effectively to make their argument. In this case, I don't think she does. Um, and the, the the thing that I see wrong with this, Trevor, mm. and I hope I, I hope I don't hurt your feelings with the <laughs> comment, but uh, <laughs> the thing that I see wrong with this article is why can't she celebrate the oldest living culture in the world that we know about for what it is why does she have to bump it up try to westernize it try to civilize it beyond beyond what it is when you can go to the torres strait islands and see agriculture does that mean that torres strait islanders should get any special privileges above uh, aboriginal australians does that mean we should value one culture more highly of course not i don't think it does so i think it's I think the whole argument's a little bit silly. Um, but it's, the other point it's, I want... It's that, just that last point is exhibiting a level of insecurity by saying, yes. well, we're actually just as good as the West on all these other typical Western or well, ideas that are normally associated with Western civilization. We're, we're just as good as you guys. It's, it's just yeah. exhibiting a level of, of insecurity, I think. It is, yeah. Sorry, um, I'll, I'll, I'll put my hat back on, my, my sympathies. I just want to read this part here. One of the... Um, areas of expertise that she claims is Aboriginal people have sophisticated mathematics and physics. Um, And you see, this is where your idea of maths as a privileged white man is quite different to to what an Aboriginal person's idea of mathematics would be. And I'll just read a little bit of this is um, she gives here an example is the Gama maths in Yurikala in Arnhem Land. When you start delving into the kinship up there, it brings out all these structures of relationships. So from these ideas of connecting people to themselves, to other people, to country and so forth, you build up a structure. And those structures and things are mathematical ideas. That's what maths does. Maths looks at patterns and relationships and understands the structures that sit underneath that. So our kinship systems were a sophisticated form of mathematics and the fact it governed the relationships between kin and country and defined responsibility leads to the idea that mathematics actually governed Aboriginal life in a way Europeans 
couldn't grasp, Hugh. Yes, isn't that just... I skipped over that. Isn't that just appalling? It's uh, it's it's almost reverse racism, isn't it? It's it's this look how superior our ideas were, which when you read them are actually so thin. I mean, what culture in the world didn't have an idea of kinship and an understanding of who was related to whom? Yes. I can't really see any any insubstantial maths in what she's talking about. And what saddens me is the. The, you can't the see the necessity you, to do it. You, the key part is you can't see it because you're European and you can't grasp it. That that yes. is the key point in all that. Is you can you can come out with all the gobbledygook you like, and then simply say, well, of course you wouldn't understand because you're not Aboriginal. Well, that's true. You've got me there, and it, it's a hammer blow to my whole argument. So if you if you <laughs> <laughs> if you um, completely uh, can give no credence to anything your opponent says, that's that's what you get, and that's that isn't that why we've got the Middle East. That's why we're in the mess we are in. Just before we yep. leave that, the bit of, still under this title or the or the uh, heading of Aboriginal people have sophisticated mathematics and physics. The last yes. line there, and if you're talking about physics. You can't go further than the boomerang, which is a phenomenal example of aerodynamics which predated Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine. Yes. I mean, I, it's, hard not, it's hard to say anything about that, isn't it, really? It is, without being nasty. So, yeah. And you're, you're uh, much gentler and nicer than I am here. So, um, well, I thought what I, dis what I wanted to suggest to you, though, Trevor, was... <clears throat> Get this, you know, we can have this honest discussion on the podcast about this, about which if it was in a more public forum, we'd both be accused of overt racism, mm -hmm. without a doubt. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to write this stuff in the comments of the section of the article, but I wouldn't write it without researching it. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I elected not to write anything in the comments section of that particular article because I felt that it would just create a, um, a storm of allegation and counter-allegation and would, would expose myself to unnecessary, um, you know, vilification from an identity politics point of view. Yeah. What do you think of that, about coming out and saying your honest opinion about something like that, knowing that you're going to be called a racist? Uh, you've got to go in almost almost wanting it, haven't you? You've got to, you'd enter that sort of field uh, expecting it and and disappointed if it didn't happen. You'd have to sort of have that mindset of, of I just can't wait, for, uh, like almost a game where you'd say, oh, I'm going to write this and I'm going to... Um, I'm going to mentally allow three hours until somebody calls me a racist, just as a sort of a game to sort of keep your, keep your spirits up because you know it's going to happen. And I think you have to sort yeah. of treat it that way so um yeah I, I think you've got to sort of not let it get to you and you've yes. got to play mental games to try and put it into a box where it can't hurt you that's that's how i would approach it i think yeah so, sounds like a good plan mm, so um so that was uh that was on that article um I sent you a couple of other articles, just generally, Australia Day. I read them. 
and yeah. changing the day. What do you think, Hugh? I, I tended to agree with an article that Joe Hildebrand wrote about it, um, that it's not going to change anything. And I particularly agreed with the article that you sent me from the conversation mm-hmm. that said, I'll just read the quote from it. Um, I question the motives and sincerity of those claiming to be upset because of injustices committed in the past by what boils down to be what one set of my ancestors did to another set of my ancestors. Mm. I I found reading that article drew me a bit closer to the conservative position of saying, well, look, leave the Australia Day where it is and all of this sort of victimhood and arguing about it is really quite divisive. Mm. And and strongly suspected of being just to suit a modern agenda and just to just to cause complaint um, for no real benefit. The article goes on to say that the same people don't complain about the high levels of violence against women and children in in um, those communities. And what's changing the date going to do to benefit the plight of? Indigenous populations in Australia, and I guess that's my f- fundamental position: is that we're not doing really anything, as despite investing millions of dollars in um, helping Aboriginal communities, because we're too distracted by the argument about dispossession and white man taking from Aboriginal man, and uh, even the debates that you see occasionally on Q and A and on the drum mm. boil down to white person being racist by saying anything critical. Mm. Yep, that's true. The the other part that the, that came out in that article is, um, let's face it, a lot of Aboriginal people are of mixed race. So potentially 25, 30%, 50% Aboriginal and the rest white man. And, yeah. um, and it's interesting mm-hmm. that people choose to um, adopt part of their ancestry and to completely um, drop off the other part of their ancestry. So when they are accusing white people of 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 uh, terrible crimes against Aborigines, you know, it's their own ancestors as well. This is the tricky part about the argument when you're it, when, when you when when you're relying on inherited rights, um, then. If, if you're using inheritance as as the means by which you are able to say things, then you've got to look at inheritance properly. And if you've inherited white blood as well, when, how can you just abandon that? You just say you do, but yeah, um, it it makes the argument tricky for people when they're of mixed blood to just take um, one side and say that they've got nothing to do with the other side if they're relying on inheritance. Yeah, and there was another one of the articles you sent me that said something to the effect of, and the the next the next the thin edge thin edge of the wedge when people um, say anything negative about um, the victimhood on Australia Day is that then we'll have DNA testing to to um, determine to what extent people are entitled to those yes. those her- heritage style of rights. So. It's almost a case of getting the facts. Is a, it becomes a form of racism. Mm, mm. I've mentioned before on the podcast in an earlier episode that uh, 
in the United States with the native Indians, uh, there's sections of uh, there which have been basically handed back to the Native Americans to administer in their own way. And some of these areas are, are relatively wealthy because of the casinos that they're allowed to operate. And they end up with massive disputes where uh, tribes will um, you know, get income from, from the casinos and they don't want to split it up amongst as many people as what they are forced to. So they start saying, well, this person here is not actually a Native American Indian um, and boot, literally boot them off the reservation to say that they're and and then they have these they enter into these enormous arguments about who really is a Native American Indian and who isn't. And in one particular case, the only person who was still able to speak the language of this Native American tribe was determined by the tribe to know to not be a Native American and was booted off the reservation <laughs> and unable to participate in the profits of the casino leaving a smaller group who were who were quite wealthy as a result. This is what happens when you try and rely on arguments of in, of inheritance like this. You'll get into yeah. all sorts of sticky situations and who knows, we may see that down the track with Aboriginal populations who, who gain royalties from different mining things where they start disputing who's actually part of the tribe and who isn't. And it could get very ugly. It's yeah, it's terribly fraught, difficult situation. Mm. So so yeah, so one of my reasons for getting involved in this whole secular religion thing is I just hate the division that it causes, and I just see the Aboriginal question um, just enforcing and maintaining division that doesn't necessarily have to be maintained and should be easing away over time rather than being accentuated so it's frustrating when things happen that try and enforce those divisions yeah hmm. i think it will be terribly important to how the country handles reconciliation and um a very very difficult uh thing to do because the amount of division within the Aboriginal communities about what needs to be done is um, is nearly irresolvable in itself. Mm. And in terms of accommodating all parties, it seems to be terribly difficult. And um, if you, you, that article you sent me about Michael Mansell wanting to have have an own his own Aboriginal state or um, territories within mm. the Australian territories um, is ridiculously divisive. It's mm -hmm. that sort of thing that you object to so much. He wants to set up our own little Middle East where where the Aboriginal communities have their own state. We have a two-state solution where they have their state, we have our state, and then then what do we do for all the other cultures? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we be Shouldn't we be bringing cultures together um, rather than dividing them? Mm. Well, I, in t in the long term, I would say that there's no solution to uh, to helping to fix the the quality of life of, of Aboriginal people in remote locations until they agree to leave remote locations. It's, it seems to me just fundamentally impossible for people to have um, a modern, fulfilling life uh, in, in these remote locations. Uh, for any sort of significant number of people to actually pull it off is just too hard. I mean, 
if we took any group of people, um, of, of white people, and threw them into remote Australia and said, live here for a few generations and see how you go. I mean, we'd be in the same position they're in right now within a few generations, I think, because if we're sitting around with nothing that we can actually do because of our location uh, and therefore relying on government handouts, it would be so corrosive to our... our um, our psyche that we would be in all sorts of trouble within a very short time I think it's just the very nature of being in a remote location where you cannot really do anything in a modern civilized way that uh, I just think they have to eventually abandon the land and people would argue well you can't ask people to abandon their culture that attachment to the land is part of their culture and it's ridiculous, insensitive, racist to suggest or insist that that's what they should do. But what people don't understand is that cultures change over time. What what the, the people who say you can't do that, number one, they're saying that um, the people who have moved aren't true to their culture then. So the Aboriginals who have moved to the city and and are living successful lives are somehow less Aboriginal because they've abandoned their culture. It also says that, that, that cultures can't change and that people are penned in and enslaved into culture as it is uh, at this date in time and can never change. And both of them are wrong. So, um, mm. so I think there needs to be a discussion that culture is something that can change and people should not be enslaved to whatever today's version of a culture is. And that, of course, wouldn't go down well with a lot of people. But anyway, that's my way of uh, looking at it. Yeah, I agree entirely. Like, the culture is seen as almost a sacred thing that you can't touch, and anytime anyone invokes it, they're automatically right. Hmm. Um, uh, whereas culture is it, it's an objective thing that can be good and can be bad. Hmm. Hmm. Hugh, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, yes, okay. Last night uh, on the podcast, I spoke with Scott about about Trump and, yes. um, and the immigration visa thing, and I'm interested. To, you wouldn't have had a chance to hear that, but what what are your thoughts on on what's happened over there? Uh, I I fifty six percent of the American people support what he's done. Mm. I don't agree with what he's done. I think it's divisive, unnecessary and could have achieved much the same thing without necessarily making the big banning of people from a weird selection of Muslim states, which mm-hmm. doesn't include the most, um, it doesn't include the country that the 9-11 terrorists came from, for instance. Um, I think that he's entitled to do it from, um, he's got a mandate to do it. I don't I don't think it's a good thing. I think it pushes him a a step closer to being impeached, which I think would be a good thing. Um, What if, if, for example, uh, green card holders had had been excluded from this and permanent residents had been excluded? And and what if, say, there'd been more warning um, so that people weren't caught, you know, halfway across the ocean by this? and, And what if it was simply... Uh, 
passport holders from these countries, we are going to put a temporary hold on you guys as of you know two weeks time or something. And um, we're just applying a blanket ban on these particular passport holders. Is that okay, or was it? Does that does that make it okay to to get rid of the sort of um, and and what if for example he'd included Afghanistan and Pakistan and a few other and Saudi Arabia and, and perhaps uh, more likely terrorist countries would would that have been okay then? Um, if if it's he's saying it's a ninety day just for for a ninety day stop of of any um, immigration based on vetting people, if he gave sufficient warning for that mm. and explained it properly. I think ethically, I don't feel as a strong case either way. I can't say that he's wrong ethically or right ethically, mm. but I think democratically he's got a mandate to do it and he's been voted in to do what he said he was going to do. Mm. Um, so I think he... If he had have um, if he had have done it in the right way, and if he had have explained it in the right way, rather than um, allowing it to be communicated as a complete ban on all Muslims, uh, then uh, then I think he's entitled to do it. Mm, mm. All right. Well, uh, you'll get to listen to the end of well the podcast we did uh, with Scott. So I'll be interested if in your response to that next time. But but you, what was your what was your view on it? Uh, well. Um, See, a lot of people seem to object to the mere fact that people are discriminated against based on their nationality. So oh, yeah. they're, they're in uproar that you could just discriminate s- simply based on nationality. And, and yeah. my answer to that is, well, if you hold that view, you should hold it consistently. And Australia, for example, when we issue uh, visitor visas... From certain countries, Western countries, we just grant them as of right. We don't investigate. You, you've just got your visa. Whereas from a poor country, we want to know all about you. How much money have you got? How much family have you got back home? We need to know all the things to because we're worried that you're going to stay here and and claim refugee status. So, and we do that on a country basis. Like we just say for these countries, uh, we will discriminate against you simply based on your passport. So. Yeah. So I, I'm the big one for consistency of argument. If you're going to be up in uproar and uh, and complaining about the discrimination based on nationality, then you have to apply that in other circumstances. So, so that's yeah. one. And and the other argument I I'm interested in is that is that these countries that have been banned have themselves for the last five decades been doing exactly the same thing to Israeli passport holders. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, it's okay for... And and the West hasn't been complaining at all. So I just say to people, if you're going to complain about this, then why weren't you complaining about that? And um, where's your outrage um, over the fact that Israeli citizens couldn't visit any number of countries in the Middle East? And not only that, but people like you and I with an Israeli stamp in our passport couldn't visit these places as well. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I say that statistically uh, you can argue that certain countries are more likely to provide uh, terrorists or problem uh, immigrants 
and that therefore you're entitled to pay more attention to certain countries and to have different rules for certain countries because statistically you know that you need to because the likelihood of issues will be higher. So, um, and that's just bad luck if you're in one of those countries. It's that's part and yeah. parcel. So, um, and that's what and that's what we do, mm. and that's what we do in Australia. And I think yeah. we're entitled to have a control over the the population of our country, mm. and to to take take an interest in the demographics of of the different populations within our country. And whilst people say, and we have a non-discriminatory, non-discriminatory policy, supposedly, mm. of um, different um, contingents of people coming into our country, mm. but I don't think too many people would agree that we should increase the level of people from um, Muslim countries to over 10% of our population. Mm. Say, when you, when you consider that France and Belgium are about 7.5%, and yet that sort of statement is a very divisive statement to make. Yeah. And so rather than doing that, they do, they, they do the same thing. They enforce the same policy by stealth. Mm. Are you aware of, of what authority he had to pass his executive order? No, I'm not. See, this is the interesting thing. I thought, well, how can a president just make a law like that? Surely you need to go through Congress to like pass a law. I just thought, how does that work? And yeah. this is interesting, Hugh, that, in fact, there was a law that he relied on. It's number 8, US Code 1182, which was passed in 1952. This was a law passed by a Democrat-controlled Congress, House and Senate and signed by a Democratic president. And this is what the law says that, that, that uh, President Trump relied on. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, the president may, by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem to be appropriate. So in 1952, America passed laws in preparation for exactly what Donald Trump has just done. He's fallen right within the law that's that's there. So where yeah. were people in the streets complaining that this law was on the books? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of compar- comparatively recent times where we think that um, being discriminatory towards refugees and immigrants is a bad thing. In the 50s, we would have all just agreed that it was... You know, we still even had the white Australia policy going there. We would agree as a matter of course that people should just come from the UK back in those days. Looking back on Jimmy Carter, he would be viewed as a very um, socially liberal um, sort of character as far as presidents go. Mm. And, And Hugh, he relied on that law to ban Iranians from coming into the USA in 1979 and forced all Iranian students to check in uh, at, that were already in the USA and he deported a whole bunch of them. So yeah. historically, um, that's gone on in the past. So it's not such a crazy thing that, no. that Trump has done. That's when you put it into context with all these other things. Yeah. You know, well, hang on, actually, it's, it's not as big a deal as what people make out. 
No, I don't think it is as big a deal as what it makes out. But one of the points that you made, I'd, I'd argue against, mm. in that although a lot of totalitarian or Muslim countries around the world do the same thing, banning Israelis, I don't think that, I think we should be the most powerful country in the world, the US, we should be holding to a higher standard. Mm. We should be holding our own country to a higher standard. Um, and And the way he has brought this in, I think, has been unnecessarily divisive and so he he should be held to account for that and for being so incompetent as to bring it in when people are in airports and mm. and then sacking the attorney general who who mm. who didn't want to um put through his policy so i agree i sort of agree with you that the policy is nowhere near as outrageous as people are making out but it, but he still should be held to a higher standard of account than um than what some of the more barbaric regimes in the world are. Yes, true. All right, Hugh. Well, on that on that note, we shall sign off for this podcast, and I hope you can join me again in the future. And uh, and yes, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's great, Trevor. Thank you very much. Hope to um, hope to talk to you in the future. Yep. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.